Hi, I'm Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner, and you're listening to Mako's newest local news platform, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we are going to do a catch-all news catch-up, and we had a lot of news this week. Michael, we had a Goucher poll come out, some new polling numbers that are very interesting on policy positions for Marylanders. We'll discuss that. We'll discuss the disaster, which was Hurricane Florence. Even though Maryland did not sustain the worst of it, there is some fallout, some policy issues that have to be dealt with on the state and local government levels. We'll discuss that. We'll also get into the 911 Commission. This is the commission to advance next generation 911 across Maryland. That was a 2018 MAKO legislative initiative. That commission met yesterday for the first time. We'll give you a recap. We'll also discuss small cell wireless. The FCC is expected to make a major ruling next week. We'll fill you in there. Some big things happening in that arena. Okay, so Kevin, we've been watching the Kerwin Commission. They're the ones that are digging into school funding and you know trying to find innovation and excellence and school outcomes and so forth. And as we've talked about this, um, I'm looking back on my notes and we've been circling dates on the calendar. I know we, had, we, we were saying the big date was going to be this early September date and we thought that was going to be the meeting when we saw detailed policy proposals and they're going to run the numbers and we're all going to understand whether these things cost $4 billion or $2 billion and whether we're going to do it in 10 years or five years and so forth. Um, on my calendar, I got that circled date scribbled out and it looks like it's today is the new day scribbled. So is today going to be the day? This is the big day? Yeah. So we're recording on Friday morning here before the Kerwin Commission. And I know your calendar is probably a mess because we have asked you and our listeners to circle dates. And then we said, no, cross that out. And we're sorry about that. But no, it does not look like today will be the day. Uh, I'm going back to my calendar. I know you got to scratch it out. It looks like today they're, they're going to consider some input that they've gotten from various stakeholders on the recommendations that they've released from these working groups. They'll go back, they'll go through those and decide whether or not they want to implement any of those into their recommendations, into their report. Uh, and then they'll have another breakout session for a couple of the work groups. So Okay. So, I mean, it's a, it's a useful step to get stakeholder input and they brought out some preliminary recommendations from the subgroups and now they've gotten some response and that's probably going to be, okay, we refined this or we got corrected on that and so forth. So, I mean, all that makes plenty of sense just as calendar people though. So, I mean, are we now looking at, it's going to be early October or mid October? Is that the next day we should circle on the calendar as the big day? I would hope so. I mean, I hate to speculate because we have been speculating on the big day for a while now. And I think a lot of people have, but I I would hope by October, they will have some numbers because remember the clock's ticking here. This report needs to be in by December so they can turn it into legislation in January and the clock's ticking away. And, you know, Dr. Kerwin has been very good about saying, look, we are not going to rush. We're going to take the time we need. Right. And I think that's the way to do it. You want to get this right. It's very important. But 
he has to have in the back of his mind that the clock is ticking. And, and it also means from stakeholders like us, there were a number of issues that we were anticipating and maybe even hoping were going to be brought up for some, let's polish this off, let's refine the wealth formula, let's deal with declining enrollment, let's talk about a variety of other things like that. And it just looks like the, the clock is not going to be there for those those other things to get to. And so you know whether they'll make any reference to that or not, we don't know, but there, there's no chance for a full vetting of all those issues at this point. I would agree with you. Unfortunately, that is true, but we'll have to wait and see. The Kerwin Commission continues to surprise us and they're working hard, so maybe they will get to that stuff. Kerwin continues. Michael, let's first get into these Goucher poll and shout out to Malia Cromer, who always does a fantastic job. She's a friend of the podcast. And Michael, she put out some really interesting numbers this week, and I think she was really smart in the way she did it. Yeah, I think tactically it's it's clear. I mean, people look forward to the Goucher poll. It's a really good kind of deep dive into both. I mean, everybody likes the horse race stuff and what, what do the numbers look like for candidates for the big high-profile races. And that tends to take all the oxygen out of the room when you release a poll. So, so Goucher this year released policy positions of Marylanders first on day one and then day two released, okay, now here's the horse race stuff everybody wants to see. So you get a day of attention on things like what do Marylanders think about this policy or that policy? And I thought that was a really interesting way to do it. It gave gave you know nerds like us an opportunity to actually dig into that sort of stuff for a while before everybody looks at, well, what's the spread? You know, right. So. What's the spread? That's what everybody's <laughs> talking about. I, I feel like no one's talking about really these, these policy questions that were asked, but they are very interesting. So let's look at a few of them, Michael. First of all, Medicare for all a.k.a. Obamacare, uh, the poll found that 60% of Marylanders hold a favorable opinion of Obamacare, 33% unfavorable. What do you think here? What does that say about the electorate? Well, there, I mean, there, there, there's kind of two questions here about about Obamacare right now, where the, the Congress has been assailing the current Affordable Care Act, but then also the notion of expanding Medicare to everybody and have either single-payer health care or something along those lines. But basically, Marylanders seem to be in favor of secure health care or even expanded health care. I do think it's interesting that the question didn't talk about whether Maryland should go it alone on Medicare. And that that's been one of the issues of contention in the in the governor's race. The question here wasn't exactly should Maryland do this on its own? It was do you support the notion of Medicare for all or single payer? So it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, but still, uh, I mean, it's not shocking that that this state might come down uh, leaning pro on both of those issues. Right. So really just did you support the policy in general? Not right. so much. Do you think we should do it in Maryland. Also, Michael, we saw uh, a question here about legalization of recreational marijuana. This is something that we talked about on the last episode, and I think we said around 60% of people normally approve. Yeah, that uh, seems to be the standard in most states. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. and in, on this poll, same thing. We 62% support legalization of marijuana for recreational use, 33% oppose legalization. Right. So that's it, it, that's an interesting issue. Um, there is a, a red-blue split there, but in Maryland, 
Maryland, like in most states, uh, it's not as it's not as simple as all the blues support and all the reds oppose. Uh, in most states, it actually ends up being a majority, and both sides uh, are supportive of it. So, you know, we saw we saw a delta here, but it's it's similar on that front. So, um, you know, we we've talked about this. This isn't a Mako or county government issue exactly, but I think it's an interesting policy issue that sort of looms in the background for for Maryland policymakers. Michael, one more interesting number here uh, having to do with the minimum wage. And we saw on this poll, 71% of Marylanders support raising the statewide minimum wage to $15 per hour, while 25% oppose it. And in comparison, in February 2018, 66% supported increase raising the minimum wage to 15. So that number is creeping up. And creeping up, and I don't, I don't know if a, I don't know if a, a few percent gain is statistically significant. I mean, I think this poll had a plus or minus four, four point five. Mm-hmm. So mathematically, you might not say that's something that's much, but. Um, I don't think the gain is a story, but that is a pretty sizable majority. And when we talked about election results after the June primary, one of the things that we were saying is, you know, the Maryland Senate looks like it's going to have a different political contour than what we've been used to. And I think it's pretty fair to say the the Senate for the last couple of terms has been the place where progressive ideas have have lost their momentum. Right. The House of Delegates has been maybe more enthusiastic for things like, I mean, this idea of a fifteen dollar minimum wage is is sort of a progressive idea that's caught hold in various places. Um, I, I don't know. I th- I think that gets serious consideration uh, this term. Um, you know, from county government perspective, I don't know exactly what that means. We've had our nuts and bolts issues with with minimum wage and 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 sick leave and other things like that. We're we're not generally in the business of paying peasant wages in county government, uh, but fifteen dollars, you know, would be uh, would be a, a sea change for every employer in the state. I think. I do agree that this may get a little more steam mostly because of the changes in the Senate, but also I think these polling numbers may give them some cover to say, look, we do support this and and the electorate supports it too. In terms of Maryland and ballot questions, I mean, we've seen states like California where they, you know, you get enough signatures, you put something on the ballot, people can support it or reject it. We don't have that same system here in Maryland. Right. I, th- I mean, this, I mean, maybe we put a pin in this yeah. as maybe this would be an interesting topic to, to do a half episode or a full episode on, on how Maryland's different than other states or this, this sort of thing. But, um, I actually, I, I was, I was a guest speaker at a law school class at the University of Maryland, uh, last week. Uh, uh, Professor Sandy Rosenberg, also a delegate, um, you know, teaches a class on, on legislation and, and, and government stuff. And on local, local government day, I was a guest. But we talked a lot about this this kind of stuff, the way you can do it at the local and state levels. It's an interesting conversation, but short version is in Maryland, this has to start in the legislature. Citizens can petition a bill that's been passed. If you don't like something the legislature did, you can pass you can pass petitions, get signatures, and put it onto the ballot under some circumstances. But you can't start the ball rolling at the citizen level. Right. Um, and it, I mean, one of the reasons that comes to mind is – some of the proposals that Marylanders seem to favor in this poll uh, could be costly. I mean, the obvious one would be, you know, some healthcare expansion. If we did that at the state level, we've seen some pretty big tickets um, associated with doing Medicare for all at the Maryland only level. And if that if that were on the ballot, I don't know if that would pass. 
But mm-hmm. I mean, another another there were there were some tax questions uh, that um, that the Goucher poll got to as well, and you had Marylanders say, "Well, yeah, we think our taxes are you know maybe too high here right. in Maryland." But 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 we also like these expensive ideas, right? right? So we don't right. want to pay any more in taxes, um, but we like the idea of Medicare for all. We like the minimum wage hike. So yeah. uh, that that's interesting. Yeah, and that's one of the punchlines that tends to happen in states that have the initiative. That's you know the sort of the the the, the shorthand for the citizen initiative ballot question is the initiative. But I mean, California is notorious for having two things that are polar opposites on the ballot together in the same election. And both of them get 65% and pass. It's like we want to do A and B and they're mutually exclusive. So they cancel each other out. Right. (laughs) It's interesting. So yeah, I think we can put a pin in that. I think it's an interesting topic to get into how questions get get onto the ballot. What's Maryland's process versus other states. So Mm -hmm. stay tuned. We'll talk about that on a future episode. So. And, and, and another thing that I, that was in the Goucher poll that I think might deserve a separate pin for, for this conversation, as, as we're thinking about policy topics that are worth some exploration here, um, there was an interesting question about, do you think the Maryland tax structure favors the poor or the middle class or favors the wealthy? And about half of people who responded to that said they think the Maryland tax system favors the wealthy. I think that's an interesting question. I don't know if that's just being dragged along by people's general attitudes that wealthy people get to dodge their taxes in general and so forth. And that may or may not be true, but maybe maybe that would be a topic, looking at Maryland's taxes and thinking in those terms more than you know, we, th- we think about the county government perspective and so forth. But, you know, but like the idea of tax incidents, who pays and where are they on the wealth spectrum? That could be an interesting thing to dig into a little bit. I'm sure there's there's uh, some work from the legislative services, the Department of Budget and Management on that could be fun. All right, Michael, let's get into Hurricane Florence. Obviously, um, our hearts go down to South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. I think some spots in Georgia got hit pretty hard, but the pictures, the video coming out of those states is absolutely heartbreaking. Massive flooding. Maryland didn't get hit the hardest here, obviously, but we get it with the, the loss of human lives and infrastructure and just a mess down there to sort of rebuild and people to get their lives back together. But right. Michael, and, and Maryland is, I mean, one thing we know is everybody in the region who was ready to, to react if it hit here, like in like places like Maryland and like Florida that were prepared and didn't get hit, the people have been sent. So we've got Maryland first responders who are down in Virginia, North Carolina, pitching in with you know, sandbags and evacuation and restoration efforts. That's, that's just how that community works. So we're, we're chipping in for mutual aid and we know it would be coming from the South if, if things had gone, you know, uh, terribly here. Yeah. So. That's always good to see that states really do come together for the common good. And, and you, you do see that mutual aid. One of the, the scary things about this too, Michael, is that after events like this, after natural disasters, we know that there are people out there who are looking to make a quick buck, take <laughs> advantage of people who are down on their luck and just in dire times. And we've heard from our partners at the Center for Internet Security, CIS, 
that they're expecting cyber crimes to increase here, Michael, in the wake of this Hurricane Florence. All right. I mean, it's, this is unfortunately um, there's a you know there's another bad side to an event like this, and it leaves people vulnerable, and it leaves another class of people susceptible to wanting to do something to help. Right. And someone out there is going to see that an opportunity to take advantage of one or both of those groups. It's a shame, but you got to be ready for it. Yeah. So you may see some sketchy looking emails with links that you shouldn't click, you know, some GoFundMe campaigns or something similar to help victims where really that money is not going to those victims. So expect to see a spike in that scam culture after an event like this. I mean, you, know, you and I aren't the experts, but I mean, we've both been in the room to hear people talk about, you know, don't click the link. Right? Right, I mean, right. I mean, I, this is this is my big takeaway as a lay person who's heard IT people. They say, if you get an email that says this is for a great purpose and it says just click here and then type in a bunch, type in your bank information, your credit card or whatever. Now, don't don't do that. If you want to do this sort of thing online, go directly to the site go to your bank site or go to the the foundation itself that sort of stuff that's the way to make the proper donations that sort of thing but you know someone sends you an email says click here to help out the poor people who are still drowning in south carolina no don't don't do that don't click it and it's really a shame that this happens but it does happen so please be on the lookout and uh, we wish the best for all of those affected by this disaster and hopefully they can get their lives back together quickly All right, Michael, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the 911 commission that met yesterday. We'll talk about small cells in the FCC, big things happening there. We'll talk about all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, yesterday was a big day for the first responder world. And here in Annapolis, we had the first meeting of the Commission to Advance Next Generation 911 across Maryland. Right. It's a really big issue for county governments. We're where, I mean, we're basically in the public safety business and 911 is the direct link to citizens. You know, we've, there's been a big education campaign so that everybody down to little kids. I mean, I, you know, I taught my kids when they're two and three years old, you dial 911 if there's a, if there's a crisis, if there's a problem, that sort of thing. I mean, kids know it. Everybody knows it. That's the way everybody gets plugged in. And our job is to take that call or receive that cry for help and get the right people there quickly to the right place and so forth. And we've talked about this background, but 911 is essential and it needs an infusion to get caught up. Right. So the technology that we're using for 911 is way behind the times. And, you know, you say 911 is extremely important and it is. And also, you know, a lot of people may have negative views on government, but this 911 service consistently polls very, very high. People like this service. They think it's one of the best services that government provides. It's been around for a long time. But again, yeah, we need to update our systems here in Maryland. So this commission, I think they're doing it the right way. This was a MAKO initiative to get all the right minds in the room, the smartest people from state and local governments, from disabilities, from the tech sector, all across the board. They're all in the same room. They're putting their heads together, and they're going to make some recommendations on how to move 
forward, you know, on the next generation 911 initiative in Maryland. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's, it's fair to have a healthy skepticism about task forces and blue ribbon commissions and things like that. And you and I have taken our pot shots, you know, in this, in this venue from time to time at various groups. But I think in this case, um, 911 is pretty technical. What it takes to deliver it today, what it's going to take to hire the right people and get the right equipment in place so that we can do better location technology for wireless callers, so we can receive text and video, so we can respond to complicated emergencies or difficult to locate people. I mean, all this stuff is what the next generation is about. And that the the nuts and bolts of that I think proved to be a little too much for the general assembly. You know, you just bring them a bill and say and say here's three or four pages of law. Please pass all this. I, I think it was just too much for them to do in one fell swoop. So uh, I think this is the right way to do it. You bring all the stakeholders together. You've got legislators at the table as well, but it's everybody you mentioned. The telecommunications companies are going to be there. The people who actually work there and manage the programs um, and like all these stakeholders together, I think we'll end up with probably consensus recommendations on what the next steps look like. And if you're a state senator or a state delegate, that should give you some foundation to say, okay, you know, we got everybody together. This is the work of a, you know, this is the work of a panel that I trust. Um, that should be some momentum to move this in the right direction and get everybody moving together. Yeah. And so they do have a quick turnaround in terms of their first reporting deadline. It's December 1st. As we sit here in September, the commission knows that it has a lot of work to do. So they're going to break into four subcommittees. They'll have weekly meetings. Uh, They'll set some recommendations, and then those subcommittees will present them to the full commission around November time, and hopefully they'll be able to vote then and and get a report to the General Assembly and the governor. Right, and I think – I mean, I mean it, it, that sounds like it's going to be a big expand then contract, but um, a lot of momentum and, and, and hats off to you and hats off to our local um, call center directors who this group got a real running start at the first meeting. Uh, they got a quick primer on where we are, where we need to go, the staffing needs, the technology needs and so forth. And I, I think that is really helpful. This wasn't a, you know, exchange pleasantries, shake hands and everybody go home we'll see you in a month uh, this was hit the ground running start you know start thinking about work groups and so forth that so that 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 momentum I think is helpful yeah very much so the next meeting will be October 23rd so we will keep you in the loop there but happy to see this commission on its way and moving forward all right Michael now let's jump into small cell wireless and the FCC just a quick primer. We've talked a lot about small cells on this podcast. You can always go back and listen. But what we're talking about here, Michael, are not the giant cell phone towers that are ubiquitous. You know, we see them right, everywhere. Right. Drive down the highway, you see this big tower off right, the side. Everybody right. knows what that's about. T- technology's changing. And so now we're talking about small wireless antennas, which can go on a utility pole and they'll provide coverage in a smaller area. Right. So we're trying to reach a football field rather than several square miles right. with a device that's smaller and easier to locate. In a dense area, you might only need to reach a few buildings worth, and then you have another one several hundred feet up the street. So that's a you know a different 
grid to try and deliver wireless service. But I think it's part of what everybody expects is going to be a pretty breathtaking advance in level of service and coverage in the areas covered by the fifth generation or 5G networks that in the years ahead, that's where things are going. So so the idea is, okay, if we're going to go out and put out a bunch of devices on electric poles and street poles and buildings and so forth, how do you go about doing that and how do we make that fit with local, you know, with, with what the community wants their neighborhoods to look like and that sort of thing? Right. So there was a statewide bill last year that MAKO had some concerns with. That bill did not pass. Uh, Mako is continuing to engage with other stakeholders, right. and, and, and local governments are working with the technology industry to, to sort of try to streamline this and, and get these, you know, sites installed to 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 help wireless coverage and to get us advancing toward 5G. So we've been, yeah, we've been working on two fronts there. Number one, we've been trying to make sure that local governments have all the tools they need to start setting up an approval process or you know whatever they want to do to make sure this stuff gets located in the right places and it doesn't interfere with your police radios and it doesn't mess up your communities where your, um, you know, your wires are undergrounded and things like that. So there's a lot of steps involved. We want to make sure that our our counties and our municipalities have the you know the, the wherewithal to pass a local law or to set up a local process. So that's part of it. At the same time, we've been working. Local government reps have been working with the telecommunications industry, trying to say, is there a way to find state legislation that would give them some of the certainty they want without stepping on all the local government toes and taking away that community input that we think is important. So those conversations are continuing to take place, but Michael. Those- those conversations may be moot because of what the FCC may do next week. Right. So, I mean, the, the record sort of scratched on this, and then suddenly everybody on the dance floor stopped and looked up because right. um, the federal government has the first say. So if the Federal Communications Commission, they're sort of the, the top dog in all oversight of telecommunications kind of stuff, they've got authority here, and they announced a few weeks ago here's a new pending order that would govern small cell deployment and it might step in and say oh you know some of those things that have been debates in state legislative you know state legislative proposals in Maryland and Georgia and a bunch of other states i mean basically across the country state legislatures are looking at this they may moot a lot of this debate by having here's the new federal law you you all been you know haggling over shot clocks for you know when is a company entitled to get a yes or no on its permit application Application, we're going to come in and say, boom, it's 90 days. That's going to be the law. Right. Um, so, you know, suddenly all this conversation at the state level, I know it has in Maryland, uh, we're sort of where we, we had a gasp and now everybody's trying to catch their breath and figure out, do we still have a debate? To, do, we, do we still need to be talking about this in Maryland or has the FCC just resolved this for us? Right. So when the FCC steps in, they say, look, California, Iowa, Maryland, right. Guam, Guam yeah. no matter where you are, this is what it's going to be. Now, Michael, obviously, there will still be concerns from a county government perspective here. But again, if the FCC drops the hammer here, uh, a lot of these conversations are going to change. And, you know, there might be some different directions that those conversations go from here on out. So. Yeah. Some of the stuff that you mentioned is interesting. What do you think happens next week with the FCC? What exactly are they considering? So, I mean, neither you nor I claim to be an expert in 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 the you know the process and the politics of the FCC. Um, most people who are 
seem to think that the proposal that's on the table has come from the majority of the membership. It's a it's a five member body. A lot of a lot of federal bodies are constituted this way. It's a five member body with two political appointees from each political party and then the fifth being from the sitting administration. Right. So Ajit Pai is the chair. Um, he's he's been placed in that role under the Trump administration and is widely viewed to be an industry friendly leader of this group. We think that's generally the attitude from things like net neutrality. We think that's generally the attitude of this FCC. So the smart money seems to be that they're going to subscribe to the idea that we need rapid deployment, lots of certainty and low costs for the industry who wants to put up all these all this equipment. So they want to streamline this process. They want to be able to get these devices installed across the country so that in anticipation for 5G coverage, the industry is ready to go and the United States is you know, a leader in this technology. So I think that's that that's that seems to be the likely outcome from the FCC. And so I, I think local governments are gonna have to figure out to what extent do we still have latitude under the new federal rules, you know, in all likelihood. Um, what to what extent can we still guide you know, hey, we have we have light poles in this neighborhood that look you know that are that are designed to look antique because this is a historic area. Can we still say that, or are we going to get this new glistening, you know, steel and white metal pole or whatever? I mean, that's the, that's the kind of debate I think is going to be important to some communities. And then you know, just things like the use of public rights of way. Ordinarily, you compensate the local governments for the space that the public has already invested in. That's what we've always done with cable companies and electric companies. Is is this is this industry going to just be able to end run that whole process? I mean, those are those are the unanswered questions. So that there are very interesting questions, and obviously, Mako and other associations, local government associations across the country, are dealing with this issue. The National Association of Counties has sent out some information to local governments asking for input in anticipation of this vote by the FCC next week. We've submitted a letter, and so, Michael, I guess stay tuned. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll probably know more next week, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep covering this. This is, this is a pretty big issue just in general in public policy and interesting, too. So. Yeah. All right, Michael, we, you know, we said we had a quick question here about the date of the primary election and the general election. And I know, Michael, you were around when Maryland felt forced to change the date from the September primary. Now we've moved that back. So... What's the deal here in terms of why some states have primaries in August, some in September? Across the board, things are different in different states. So I know there's a federal law that says you have to have 45 days between a primary election and – For federal offices, for for your congressional representation and and so forth. For for the presidential election, Congress. So you need to have time to get those ballots done. You need to have time for a presidential election to appoint delegates to go to the national conventions and whatnot. But for state elections, we've seen New York and Florida – holding primaries later in the game, you know, right. and into September. So what's the deal? Right. I, I, I don't, I don't know, but I will, I will, I will say I was around Annapolis back when we were having this like mini debate about where to, where to pl- where on the calendar should Maryland place, place the primaries in non-presidential years in gubernatorial election years. Mm-hmm. When do we have our primaries? And for, for years, most Marylanders were used to having a September primary and, 
I mean, this wasn't a Mako issue. We weren't involved. We weren't at the table, you know, you know, negotiating on this. But I remember the conversation basically being, we have to abandon our September primary because of timing issues. And it was about, you know, having enough time to get ballots printed and sent out to overseas and military and, and, and other voters who are in certain circumstances. So September was totally unworkable. So the only things on the table were August and sooner. And there was this big debate about, well, should we just, you know, do it in February, March, like a lot, like in the presidential years, or should it be during the school year or after the school year, I mean, and ended up settling on late June. But I mean, one thing we've seen, I, I think it's at least in part attributable to the difference in timing is primary participation seemed to be down in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I think the numbers say in 2018 was down again. It's tough to make that apples to apples, but one of the reasons could well be the unfamiliarity with the different time. Um, so, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, low turnout, I think most people would say you want people to participate in the voting process. And, and anyhow, I think it's a it's a tricky issue. And I don't remember all the ins and outs of that debate, but it is puzzling. You know, Maryland, we can't possibly have a September primary. And here we are just in the last couple of weeks seeing multiple states holding their primaries. Yeah. And again, you know, that may be because those are just state offices and some states hold different primaries for, you know, federal office versus right. state office. So we'll look into that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I mean, I guess New York State must have split because mm-hmm. because New York State, there were some headlines about primary races in in the congressional races um, that were, you know, that were changing. Right. All right. So that may be part of what's going on is maybe states have decided to have multiple primaries. Anyway, something we can look into, um, you know, whether this is a Mako and county government issue or not, but just as as people who are following this kind of stuff, I thought it was interesting. Okay, Michael. So we've gotten through the program here. One note, we talked about the Kerwin Commission earlier in this episode. We said that we are recording before the meeting today, which is Friday, uh, September 21st. They're going to meet later today. We don't expect to see the numbers again. I mean, we've I'm- been talking about that. But I think maybe after today's meeting, we'll have... I hope a little bit more to go on and we'll be able to come back maybe next week or in a couple weeks and and try to put this all together and see, you know, how much money we're talking about, who's paying for what, and and more in line of what this commission is looking to do and the timeline they're looking to do it. Right. And and that's what everybody's trying to do. Mako's not alone here. I mean, you and I have, have dedicated a good deal of time on the podcast and on Mako's blog and in our newsletter and so forth, trying to cover this commission and the direction they may be heading. We had a big session at our summer conference and had Britt Kerwin and, and multiple leaders from the commission on a panel and so forth. So, so we're, we're all in for where this is heading. I think we're correct in seeing this as a huge issue for the legislative session ahead, but I, I still believe this conversation hits another gear with a whole broader wave of stakeholders once somebody starts running the numbers. Absolutely. So, so in the weeks ahead, we'll be waiting for a little more flesh on the bones on the policy proposals and how long are things going to take and what are our true aspirations. But I'm still waiting for sideways sheets of paper. We all are. And uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll have some more clarity today. So we'll be back next week to give you an update on what happens in today's meeting. But we just wanted to let you know we haven't forgotten about that. We're covering it. <laughs> it's uh, coming. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> we keep saying it's coming. Uh, hopefully it's really coming. It's really coming. <laughs> 
All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, we always appreciate you to subscribe and give us a like. Tell your friends. It helps us get our message out. Until next week, Michael and Kevin signing off. We will talk to you soon.